Good morning, Terra Family Second Service. Good to see you guys. We are um, going to be continuing in our Gospel of Matthew series here today. We're going to be in chapter 11, the end of chapter 11. And one of the more famous passages in Matthew's Gospel, not in the New Testament, one that uh, speaks of the reality that as human beings in a broken world, we will experience burden. And one that offers us a great promise of hope that Jesus will provide rest for those who will seek rest in Him. So, open with me if you're not already uh, at chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. If you'd like to read through your Bibles, you can. To chapter 11, starting in verse 20. And then it'll also be on the screen behind me as well. Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because the people did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise understanding to reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. Before we dive into this particular passage, I want to read to you from one other place in Scripture. It comes from the Old Testament, from the prophets there, Jeremiah. In chapter 6, here he speaks of rest as well and how we achieve that. And I have to believe that Jesus had this passage in mind when he spoke these words in Matthew 11. Jeremiah chapter 6, starting in verse 16, will be on the screen behind me as well. He says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths, what a good way it is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, You will not walk in it. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people. As we go along today, it's just going to be important that you have that passage in mind as well as Matthew 11, because I do think that Jesus um, was bringing a 
fulfilled uh, and, and ultimately fulfilled prophecy for which it was spoken by Jeremiah to its application to the people of his day that he was preaching to and doing miracles before, and then ultimately being beyond that us. So we'll refer back time again to Jeremiah's words and kind of the intersection between that passage and ours today. If I was to give um, this message a succinct title, I would call it The Paradox of Restful Burdens. Paradox of Restful Burdens, because that is a paradox, right? Restful burdens. Not too many people think burdens of being something that are restful that actually causes strain and causes entirely. But I think that's exactly what Jesus is trying to convey here and trying to explain to us how that works. So to expand upon that a little bit, um, these, this passage, I think, is really about two paths um, that we can walk, each that have its own burdens that operate paradoxically. We walk down one path and we assume things are going to be one way, and we walk down the other path and assume things are going to be another way, and it's actually the opposite. Paradox meaning uh, the opposite of what you expect. Okay. So the first path, there's two paths here we're going to explore, is the path of the natural man. By that, I just mean in our fallen and broken world, kind of the natural way we'll go when left to ourselves, our own natural desires as a result of um, sin nature. Even for Christians, the residual vestiges of the broken world we're living in and forming the decisions we make. Okay, So that first path is the path of the natural man. And, and here's the thing, paradox. It appears to be uh, liberating. It feels liberating. But it leads to burden. A burden ultimately is too heavy to be A burden that can be crushed under the way down. Then there's a second path. And the second path is that of all discipleship, following after Jesus. And discipleship, man, at first glance, or maybe a hundred glance, if you are following Jesus, seems burdensome at times. Too hard. And there is a kind of word in this action. But it actually needs a spiritual rest. Jesus says. And I want to explore these two paths with you today. And I want to start with the former one. This natural path that has this appearance of being liberating but actually needs a great burden. So I have a question to start things off for those of you here today who call yourself a Christian. That's right. A follower of Jesus. This is primarily targeted at you at this point. In situations where you have sought after that long desire of rest, or satisfaction, or sense of purpose in life, have you ever achieved it? On a path that you know contradicted Jesus' teaching about the way of the kingdom, have you ever achieved the rest of the law or the satisfaction you're looking for in life? On a path that directly contradicts what you know the word of God teaches. If you say, let's see some people not know. Some of you may feel like actually, yeah, I'm kind of honest, like, you know, I'm on that path. Um, and if you're in that place, I would just say to you, you haven't lived long enough. And I don't say that to be a killjoy. I say that because I care about you. I say that because that's what Jesus says here ultimately. So that path never comes wrong. For most of you, the answer to that probably was no. The crazy thing is, and I speak from experience, we know that, and yet we often are self-tempted and even caving in at times following our natural inclinations. 
our natural desires, even where we know it conflicts with the ways of the kingdom that Jesus has been talking to us about thus far, thus far through Matthew's gospel. We find ourselves cheating a little bit over here. We find ourselves overindulging a little bit over there. We find ourselves living a lie longer and longer because it's just easier to find it. We find ourselves holding on to and nursing our grudge because it just feels better than letting go of letting someone but forgiving someone. And eventually what can happen when we do this is we can steamroll our conscience. We can steamroll for so long what we know to be true and right and build up this head of steam down these paths of our natural inclinations that feel less burdensome in the moment, but end up being ultimately a burden that's just crushing. So that's the situation that people find themselves in when Jesus is speaking to today, whether they know it or not. And these people, so you understand, are the modern or the ancient equivalent of you and I. These were the people of God Jesus was speaking to. At least they thought of themselves as such. I think they probably were followers of Yahweh. They understood the Old Testament, they were taught, very religious about people. Crazy thing is, they saw the works that Jesus was doing. They saw these incredible miracles that he was performing. Acts of mercy, healing the blind, raising the dead. Unstopping the ears of the death. Kinds of amazing things only God could do, and yet they refused to turn their ways. They heard Jesus preach on the kingdom, that was served on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, and really all through chapter 10, and learned about Jesus' teaching about the kingdom, his kingdom, how it's so different. Based upon their lack of response, we can only assume. They felt like, you know what? That's just too unrealistic. You know what? That's just too burdensome. And so, by and large, this region along the shores of Galilee, these three towns that Jesus calls out here in this passage, where he had done all his ministry to this point, not far away from where he grew up in Nazareth, this region refused to turn from their ways. They refused to repent. To believe that the ways of the kingdom were actually better. Because it rubbed against the way of life. It's just too hard. And so, what do we see Jesus do here? We see Jesus go into a prophet mode. Okay, let me give you a little bit of a background on this too. Um, the different offices or um, positions that God had sovereignly ordained in Israel's history to find the perfect fulfillment of Jesus. In the Old Testament, in Israel, you have prophets, priests, and kings. Right? The kings were the ones that. People first demanded uh, that they have God was going to work out their plan, but they demanded to have a king, an earthly human king, and those kings were intended to lead the people into prosperity, spiritually and materially, to protect them from the surrounding nations. Then there were priests, there were those who sought to intercede between God and man. They were kind of the bridge, they were kind of the mediators, they were, they were the ones who said, um, you guys are desperately in need, and so I of of God's forgiveness and mercy, and so they would intercede through the sacrificial system. And then you have the prophets, those who spoke these very direct, sometimes seemingly partial words to the people to awake them from their stupor because their sin was ultimately leading them down the path of destruction. 
And so Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of those things, the perfect embodiment of the prophet priest of James. And here we see him going to prophet mode. Now, you may hear these words of Jesus and find yourself chafing against them. You may hear these words, these woes he pronounces, these judgments, and think to yourself, I don't like you, Jesus. I was humble to this point with Jesus who I saw was merciful, Jesus who I thought was compassionate, and all his amazing works and his cool moral teachings, but what's up with this? Here's the thing, Jesus wasn't being demon. Jesus was being prophet. And what the Old Testament prophets did was when the people were on the brink of disaster, they came in, and as a last-ditch effort to avert that disaster, they would speak truth directly to the people in hopes that they would turn and repent. And so Jesus here is pronouncing quotes over these people. This wouldn't have um, been shocking. It wouldn't have been unfamiliar. Yes, there hadn't been a prophet in Israel's history up until John the Baptist and now Jesus for 430 years, but they knew their Old Testament, and they knew the voice of the prophets, and they understood that that's how and why Jesus was addressing them right now. So Jesus then is in the prophet mode here. Now, what I want to do with you for the next few moments is recall with you, or share with you, some of Israel's history that has led up to this point and is contributing to the current cultural climate, cultural circumstances, and just talk about why are we being so stubborn? And this is really important because it's so easy to impose ourselves onto Scripture and into the shoes of people and say, that's ridiculous. If Jesus did those kind of miraculous things in front of me today, I would totally The reality is, you and I probably would. We're not so different in ancient Israel that we wouldn't also have this kind of southern street and don't also have this kind of And so what I want to do is share with you one piece of history that's led to the stubbornness, despite all the things Jesus has done in your midst, so that you can empathize, not so that you can know their lack of repentance, but so that you can better understand them and turn your own mind. Okay, so if you remember before we got into the Gospel of Matthew, we were going through our uh, minor prophets series. Those are the 13 Old Testament books. Um, uh, written by the prophets, or capturing the prophecies of these 13 different men. Mine because of length, not importance. And all of these prophets had the same purpose. They were sent by God to confront the people about their sin, because things have just gone way off track. Um, in some cases, Israel had gotten to the place where their sin was darker than even the surrounding nations, where they had not only adopted the, the ways and the forms of worship and the idolatry and the sacrificial systems of the surrounding nations, but they were also incredibly cruel, and not only to outsiders, but to their own. Again and again, in my prophets, we see the prophets confront the people about um, the power structure that's set up, the power holders within Israel were abusing in some really ugly ways, those who lacked it, amongst their own people. And so the prophets then, in light of all of these sins and this waywardness, this natural path that the people of God are going down, confront them and say to them and warning them that they're going to go from being an autonomous kingdom, relatively prosperous and influential in the world, to being ruled and oppressed by other kingdoms if they don't turn and change their ways. So, long story short, we know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament history, that 
586 BC, the world power of time, the Babylonians come in and they rip Israel, they rip the southern kingdom um, out from their home, they destroy Jerusalem, and they drag them off into exile, which lasts, you would take about 100 years. They're not slaves, they are not the oppressed ones. Here's the thing I want you to see where we're going to catch you up to speed where Israel is at right now in Jesus' time. Even after they return home to their homeland and started to rebuild the city walls, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the way of life as they knew it from that point forward in their history, they remained the oppressed people under the common rule of these outside of foreign powers. So after that, the Babylonians and the Persians, after the Persians and the Greeks and the Egyptians and the Syrians, as the Romans. And as was typical, the cruel, the, the rule of these uh, oppressors was cruel in so many ways. The Romans would assert their authority in these Israel, Israelite towns with violence and intimidation. As they would go from town to town, they would rape and they would pillage. And that included these three on the shores of Galilee. Horace Bethsaida. And so you can understand maybe a little bit about this deep-seated hatred towards outside oppression. The Romans in particular began to surface in the hearts of these people, this desperation, and they, they responded in one of two ways, primarily. They would either acquiesce and you know, live into the old saying, the old mantra of you can't even join them, you call collaborators, like Matthew, the tax collector, who decided to work for them. Or, on the other hand, they would violently resist and take vengeance into their own hands and, um, and, and seek to retaliate in bloody ways against that occupying force. And Jesus is calling them to repentance from both of those options. Because the kingdom of God is neither about um, selfishness, on the one hand, those who are collaborators taking advantage of the situation, or vengeance on the other, taking matters into their own hands. But rather love and forgiveness, radical love and forgiveness. And that didn't make sense to these people who had lived through seeing their villages burned and being robbed and they themselves perhaps being victims or joint family members who were raped by these Roman soldiers who came in to occupy their homes. So what was the one? You had treated those who loved and treated that. You probably want vengeance. That's the current situation that Jesus is speaking into. See, life wasn't all fluffy and easy, as you might think from a distance. These towns were, in fact, right in the thick of that violent resistance against that occupying force. I want to share a little bit of a kind of a, a geographic historical background for you. Where these three towns were located, it's kind of interesting and makes more sense of Jesus' audience. All three of these towns were in the shadow, so to speak. They were near this mountain called Mount Carmel. Um, and there'll be some pictures behind me. It's these sheer cliff faces, um, beautiful. Uh, today, a tourist site um, and a place that's popular for rock climbing. But back then, as you'll see in some of the pictures, there's a bunch of holes in that rock face, which led to this elaborate network of paths and caves that served as a headquarters 
with a violent Jewish resistance. So what would happen is on these unsuspecting areas of Roman soldiers would end up coming by this area, uh, this rebel force that was in these caves would just jump out and slaughter. No doubt Simon the Zealot was probably hanging out in the time these caves were part of that effort. And so these are the ones Jesus is calling them. These are the circumstances that they're dealing with. He's calling them to turn from things like taking vengeance into their own hands, which, by the way, explains the emphasis we saw earlier in all of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. Don't retaliate, don't take vengeance, love their enemies, things over and over again, right? Yeah, he knew it was going to be universally read as his word one day. He was speaking into the current cultural climate of the day. That's why we see so much of it. And so these people thought Jesus was crazy. Right? Despite all the incredible miraculous things he was doing. Can you understand a little bit better? Why despite all that? No. Can't go that way. That's too hard. Too unrealistic. You're too out of touch, Jesus. Despite all the things that he'd done to demonstrate who he was and the ways of the kingdom. So Jesus goes to the prophet mode because he knows how this inevitably is going to end for the people. Those who live by the sword die by the sword, right? See, when we follow our natural instincts, we end up carrying burdens with us that we may think are going to be light, but ultimately will be crushing in the end. Jesus knew this was the inevitable destiny of those he was preaching to who were refusing to repent. And so he speaks of Hades here, and I want to point this out and clarify that when he says he'll be brought down to Hades, he's not speaking of hell here. Jesus has plenty to say about this subject, we'll get to it later in Matthew. But here, Hades is actually a transliteration of a Greek word. That just means it sounds in the English like it did in Greek because they didn't bring it over in translation. So here's what Hades means translated. It means um, it's, it means death, it means the grave, it means the realm of the dead. And it was an image that Jesus was given of destruction and death. That's what he was saying. Now to kind of draw this out a little bit more, Isaiah in the Old Testament um, used the same image, the same word, equivalent in the Hebrew, to metaphorically describe the exile. In chapter 5 of the book of Isaiah, he uses this metaphor of Sheol, the Hebrew equivalent of Hades expanding its jaws as if to swallow the people. And it was Isaiah's metaphor to describe Babylon coming in to take the people away into exile. See, the idea here isn't hell. The idea here is the natural consequences for sin. That Jesus was seeking to have these people hurt. So the point is this, guys, that we're going to kind of bring me to a head this first part here. If you walk in the way that feels natural to you long enough, while it appears less burdensome, it inevitably is going to be destroyed. The example that I gave here was vengeance. It was just too hard for these people to give up. Because the natural inclination in the broken world of hearts is to take matters of our own hands when someone hurts us or oppresses us. But that wasn't the only subject that Jesus spoke about in the topic. So far, in his gospel. There are other natural pathways that he described we would go down and he called us away from, and he called us to repent from, and talk about adultery. 
which is the natural impulse. A lot of the times when human beings with relationships are disappointing us, it's going elsewhere. He talked about lust, which is a natural human impulse when we strongly desire something. To the point at which we think oh, my, my desire is so strong that it justifies me taking this thing. He talked about lying, which is the natural impulse when we're afraid of the consequences of what other people think. We're afraid of walking the light. We're afraid of transparency. And these natural desires can be so strong that even when we know what the Bible says, even when we know the truth, even when you've seen Jesus do amazing things in your life for other people, heal or provide in miraculous ways and protect you in instances you know that have to be God, still refuse to turn. Why? Because while we know there may be some consequences to our actions, we feel that the burden of what it means to follow Jesus in the kingdom life is too great. And that leads us to the second paradox here, which is the path of discipleship that Jesus is offering upon us to, which appears burdensome, but leads ultimately to rest. Okay? So we're turning the corner here. Now, not everyone who hears about the kingdom of God finds it to be something that's attractive to them or desirable. And, and for some, it's not about it being attractive. For some, it's just it sounds to them to be something that's ridiculous or foolish or too simplistic. And this comes through and is implied in this prayer that Jesus prays, authentically a prayer to his Father, but also for the benefit of those listeners to ponder and mull over what he's saying. He says in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise understanding or the learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will, according to translations, for so it was your good pleasure. So Jesus here is contrasting those wise and learned on the one hand with little children on the other. He's not talking about relative intelligence here. He's talking about faith. He's talking about trust. The wise and learned that he has in view here are those who think that they know best. There are those who think that they don't need God. There are those who are honestly too smart for them. And I have to think we're not immune from this ourselves. I think this is the root sin of humanity. When you think back to Genesis 3 and the garden and Adam and Eve, what is it that they were so tempted by? It's to be like God. Because if they could be like Him, then they would no longer need God. Jesus contrasts this group of people who know best, they need God, they smart, they're all good, but these little children. That doesn't have to do necessarily with age, with characteristics of the young among us that are so admirable sometimes. And that is this heart posture of humility that is willing to admit neediness, that is teachable, and guys hear this, that trusts God at points that go against your natural emotions. Put another way, the wise and learned are those who think that they know the truth, but in actuality they do not. Whereas the little children are those who realize they don't know the truth. The Lord is the least to reveal. Guys, that's not, that's not weakness. To feel you don't know all the answers and that you have need of someone else. That's the problem. That's the key. 
Jesus goes on to invite everyone here, all, he says, to come and find rest. But implied here is that the only ones who are going to actually receive it are the ones not only who are tired and weary and burdened by this life, but also those who humbly realize that they need to be their greatest So is that you? It's probably safe to say that you're tired and weary and, and worn down, but if so, are you looking outside of yourself? In particular, are you looking first to Jesus for that help as the one who ultimately can help alleviate those burdens? When it comes to these burdens that Jesus is speaking of, the most direct application here has to do with the Old Testament law. But that's the context he's speaking to is these about Jewish people who are burdened by the weight of all of these laws, not only that Moses gave, but then, of course, they were compounded by all the additional ones that were heaped upon them by their religious leaders over time. And that may be a little bit hard for you to relate to. Not that we don't get what it is as Christians to understand laws and morality and things God calls us to live, but, I mean, in comparison to live in that culture in that time, it was huge, huge burdens, not just moral law, but ritual law and civil law and all these different laws that they had to keep in order to seek to find acceptance with God in a community. It's a burden But to kind of help hold this back, because Jesus meant this passage and this promise for both Jews and Gentiles, of which most of us are the latter, not Jews necessarily, here's I think what the universal idea is when it comes to burdens, the burdens that you carry, the burdens he wants to Rest and alleviate. Aren't the greatest burdens that you carry the absence of things that you most desire? Even things that are good desires. God is making you happy. Things like peace, the absence of peace, the absence of fulfillment, the absence of acceptance and meaning in our work of happiness, the absence of uh, comfort in our life. It's burdens and things, when they're not there, universal things that humanity has always dealt with since the and here's the thing, when we don't find ourselves satisfied in this way, what we do find ourselves as is anxious, craving approval, unfulfilled in life, without purpose, unhappy, in pain. And that, guys, is when you find yourself at the crossroad that your mind is at. With the choice before you of which path you're going to walk with the burdens that you're carrying. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient past, what a good way it is to walk in it and find rest for your souls. It's the offer. We're at the crossroads. And it can seem at that point that going the natural way, going the way of the impulses of our flesh, will be what's, what most lightens our burden. So when we find ourselves anxious, do we turn the things to Escape from that. Food or drugs or sexual pleasure or any other number of escapes. When we're craving approval, we seek it through attention, through showing off, through working extra hard in order to be seen, to try to fit a certain image that we want others to have of us. When we feel like we're without purpose and meaning in life, do we seek to fill that void with thrills and adventure, taking foolish risks? When we're unhappy, do we lean on relationships in an unhealthy way in order to fill that void. When we're in pain, we think of the path that will most alleviate our burdens is to distract our path ourselves and unhealthy 
you with. Maybe we take it out of others or over rely on substances that would numb us to that pain that we're in. Because those are such strong temptations because the way that we're called to and the way of the kingdom seems burdensome to us. Selflessness, sacrifice, humility, love, patience, kindness, self-denial. I mean, if we're honest, sometimes don't those things seem way harder of a, a route to take, a path to take, a lifestyle to live when you're dealing with all the burdens that are in your life. The path of our natural desires and impulses, the path that Jesus warns us here, will ultimately end up leading us to a kind of weirdness, despair, and destruction that will never work. So he offers an alternative. He offers us the path that he has walked. He offers us kingdom life. And he offers to walk with us. And he tells us that on this path, and this path only, will we find Christ. Now, I want you to see something about what Jesus doesn't say here, just to be clear. Jesus doesn't say that following him will have the burdens. I mean, the fact that we're called to put a yoke upon us implies that we'll be burdened in the journey of being a disciple of this. He doesn't say that being a disciple is easy. That's not what the word means here. We'll get into that in a moment. He says things elsewhere like, if you're going to follow me, then your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees, the most moral, upstanding, and religious people in that day. He doesn't say that the following him will no longer have hardships and pain for fun. Because the soulship, guys, is not about escaping the world. It's about experiencing rest and this. And the only way that it can happen, Jesus says, is by taking his yoke upon ourselves. So, how, how is it that we can find rest in the midst of carrying the kinds of burdens that we talk about that I have to mention resonate with you guys, maybe even where you're feeling that you are right now? The burden of living the Jesus way when we come up against things like pain and anxiety and loneliness and unhappiness. How? How can we find rest in the midst of those things? The key is in this amazing metaphor that Jesus gives us here about the yoke. The yoke that he wants to take from him and put upon ourselves. So I want to share with you a couple of powerful truths that when we unpack uh, this common metaphor in our Bible, or common, at least familiar to us, um, I think will serve to encourage your soul and buoy it with hope today. My prayer is just that God will help you to see with fresh eyes the beautiful promise that He's offering, Jesus is offering through this metaphor of a yoga. So the first thing here I want you to see and understand is that a yoga is made to fit well, especially when Jesus is a part of it. Um, if you're not familiar, a yoke is this wooden device that goes over the shoulders um, and neck of a beast of burden. And what it was intended to do is help spread out the load as much as possible to make the work that that beast of burden um, is called to to be more sustainable. The better the yoke, the better it fit, the longer that they could endure the labor that they were called to. Jesus says here, my yoke is easy. What he doesn't mean is the discipleship is easy. That word also can be translated as well. My yoke is well See, the way that yokes were made was that an ox or piece of burden was brought and measured, and um, a carpenter would cut a rough, hewn um, uh, yoke 
and then they would bring the ox back and they'd set it on the ox and they would remeasure and the artwork would make careful adjustments to the point at which that yoke fits so well that there would be hardly any changing on that. In other words, that yoke is tailor-made for the ox. So there's this legend that Jesus made the best ox yokes in all of Galilee. Remember, this is basically his home area. He lived nearby. And remember also that he was a carpenter. So this isn't so far about you think that it's going to be true. Also, in those days, it's typical for shops to have over their door a name of what it is that they did or what they specialized in. And it's been suggested that the one over Jesus' door may have been my yokes get well. Jesus, in other words, may have been using this picture from his days as a carpenter in Nazareth to make the point that he is making it. And in other words, what Jesus is saying to us is, I know your burdens are heavy, but I want you to trust me that my yoke fits well, better than the one of your own making. The life that I call you to is not pain free, it will be difficult at times, but it's been tailor made to fit you trials and all. You just See, in following Jesus, we still carry burdens. But rather than those burdens feeling exhausting and depressing, he's saying when we take his yoke upon us, as paradoxical and counterintuitive as it may sound, we'll actually find it to be the most rewarding and most fulfilling experience. That's what he needs by rescue. That's what he's offering you. So that's the first thing. The yoke is made to fit well. The yoke Jesus is offering you is tailor-made for you and what you're going through the life is called to. And the second thing is that a yoke is made for two. Okay, almost every yoke that I've ever seen, and certainly the one that Jesus had in mind here, was a yoke that was made for two pieces of burden. In other words, there was a load that was shared. So when you put on the yoke that Jesus is calling you to put on, there's an empty space. And I hope that you already can guess who filled that. Jesus is saying here that when you put on this yoke, you're not going alone. That if Jesus has called you to something, he will be with you in that thing. So the burden that you are carrying is not less because he demands less of you, it's lighter, it's less because he's pulling with you. He is in that yoke with you. That's so different. So different than the type of leadership, religious leadership, that the people were used to. Jesus' day. Later on in Matthew, when Jesus is teaching the crowds of his disciples, and uh, he kind of warns them about the type of leadership that they submitted themselves to in the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. And he says this he says, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So, since they're teaching Moses' law, well, do, do and observe whatever they tell you, but don't do the works that they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear it. They lay them on your shoulders. They themselves are not willing to live. That's not Jesus. Jesus' leadership is so different because he's willing to get into the trenches with you. This is, that's what servant leadership is. See, Jesus wasn't doing anything that he hadn't already done. He wasn't asking his disciples for them to do anything 
He had no idea what he was going to do. And in fact, we can never do what Jesus when he's already done for us. He proved that through being willing to go to the cross and to die for sin and be separated from his father. No greater burden than suffering could have experienced than that. The other thing I want you guys to see and think about here is Jesus knows struggle. And he knows suffering. Been there before, and so know that he's always pulling in the yoke with you from the hardest circumstances of your life. And hear this, guys. That means since he's, he's been there before, he knows how to get you to where he's calling you to go. He's familiar with that path, and he's with it in you. So there's nothing you can't do that Jesus has called you to because, number one, he's tailor made that yoke to fit you for who you are. And secondly, because he's put in that yoke with you. This is why, then, when you trust him by taking on his yoke, you can come out the other side of walking through seasons of incredible burden and experience what you call rest. When what you otherwise would have thought is that only could have ended in being broken. So we want to do That's what he's offering us. So this is where I want to end. I'm talking trust a little more. That one important theme. Because there's something that easy to miss here, but Jesus is actually talking about two different kinds of faith and two different kinds of rest in these last three verses of this chapter. I'm going to talk First, there's this rest that comes by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which results in peace with God, meaning no longer under condemnation. That burden is lifted. We are no longer condemned. We're no longer for God's wrath. We are forgiven of our sins. Peace with God. We would call that salvation. And this rest follows the invitation Jesus extends here to come to me. But there's a second offer here. Not just come to me, but take my yoke upon yourself and learn from me. This is different. That kind of faith and trust implies that we trust that His will. His ways and the kingdom life is better than our own will and ways, our own natural impulses, our own inclinations. This kind of trust implies that we're willing to surrender when push comes to shove, when we get to that crossroads Jeremiah talks about. We're willing to actually follow Jesus in true discipleship or obedience. This is where you step into this, to the yoke Jesus is offering, and you say, Yes, Lord, to Him, wherever it is that He's calling you to go. When you do that, you not only have peace with God, but you have the peace of God, abiding in the heart, through the ups and downs of life, and even the most incredible burdens that Jesus has called you to carry. That is what rest is. That is the rest that he is offering you here today. But please hear this. That rest only remains theoretical until you take that yoke upon yourself and pull in the direction that he is calling you to go. Please, living the kingdom way, in the midst of the tell passes of your times, in the midst of those burdens that you so weighty on your shoulders. That's what I will all be more that. Trusting that you are sovereign over this circumstance in my life, you designed it for it, you with me in this yoke and call me That is where the presence of God and the rest of God will become most real for you. Some of you guys. Maybe you're today not as a follower of Christ, but you know the weight of burdens in your life. You 
long for this rest. Maybe recognize you need it from someone outside of yourself. And Jesus is an invitation for you to come to me, come to him. And find rest for your weary soul. That kind of faith is like trusting that Jesus is who he says he is. Some of you here today, probably the majority, are followers of Christ and perhaps even longtime followers of Jesus. You feel burdened, and this rest that he speaks of here just feels to be right with you. It doesn't feel real. It's not been your experience. And it's because you've been reluctant to take this yoke on you. To walk upon the path that he's called you to. And he's saying to you, repent. Repent. Turn from the path that you're on with the burden that will ultimately crush you. You take matters into your own hands. And trust me that while it may not seem so, carrying your burdens my way will actually produce rest. It's paradoxical that I sound. So as we move toward a close, what I want to do is give you guys a few minutes here, along with the Lord, to lift before Him those things that you've been dealing with, those burdens in your life, where you've essentially actions and saying, I know better than God. I don't think you'd be satisfied as well, comfort me as well, strengthen me as well. Repent of that. Take advantage of Jesus' offer here. Step into his yoke. To take off of one of your own name. Turn from that way of thinking and doing. Turn to him. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for help. And commit yourself. To take his yoke upon you and ask for the ancient past. Ask him to show you the ancient past, but a good way it is to walk in it, to believe in him when he says that he can provide the rest that your soul most wants for. Take the next minute or two to take those things with him. Say, Lord, I can't do this. So I want to take you up on your promise to experience the rest that you're saying Jesus is offering you by taking his yoke upon you instead. Right, take a minute, pray, bring those things before the Lord and close the